Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, my friends, to How Magicians Think. This episode is called Magic in the Holocaust. How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua Jay, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. We've been conditioned to think about magic as just tricks, tricks that amuse us, tricks that amaze us. But magic has a transformative power, the power to keep somebody alive. And my friend Werner Reich, there's no other way to put this, is the most remarkable person I've ever encountered. He's 92 now, and he's lived a life that you couldn't make up if you tried. Listen to this from an onstage interview I did with him in 2017. And he explained to me the move. It was a glide. And I didn't have any cards to practice. I spent another year in the camp. I was there till January 1945. Then I was on a a seven-day death march to... Mauthausen, and then I was in Mauthausen another four months, and I I nearly died. Every day, I practiced that trick in my head. Nearly every day, when I wasn't in in pain. And when I came out of the camp a year later, I bought a deck of cards, and I did the trick flawlessly, because I've been practicing for a year, To this day, I am amazed how well I did it. He mentions the glide. The glide is a basic slight. It's a slight that you would learn, I would say, on your fourth or fifth lesson of card magic. It's a secret slight, and I'm not going to tell you what happens exactly, but it happens on the bottom of the deck, and it's something like a bottom deal. It looks like you're taking the bottom card, but you're actually not taking the bottom card. It's a move that can be mastered relatively quickly, but it's a very deceptive move that goes back more than a couple hundred years. Now, Warner didn't end up being a professional magician. I don't think he performed magic even one day while he was in the camps. But this is the differentiator of Warner's story from everybody else. And it provides an essential human element to this story that we often forget. We often think of Holocaust survivors and Holocaust victims as prisoners. And they were prisoners, but they were also curious people. And hearing this story between a magician and a young person curious about magic reminds us, it reminds me, that these people had emotional needs, that they had desires and curiosities, and that the little moments in life had to be passed with something. And why not magic? 
Now, the crazy thing is that this magician that he learned from, Nivelli, was a magician who made his living doing magic before he was taken to the camps and who also survived the camps, who also found his way to New York and who also ended up settling on Long Island. To me, one of the weirdest parts of this story and probably the only unrealized part of the story, so to speak, is that Warner and Novelli lived within an hour of each other. In this whole world, imagine meeting in Auschwitz and ending up settling an hour from one another, but they never met up again. They didn't know about the other's existence until Warner learned about Novelli in his obituary. I saw an obituary which was somehow headlined, uh, you know, the Holocaust magician or something like that, uh, or the Auschwitz magician. There's some sort of a reference to the camp. I started reading it and it talks about Nivelli and name meant absolutely nothing to me. But his number was very, very close to mine. Mine was 1828 uh, and his was 1700. 67 or something. And then it mentioned somewhere along the line, Levine. Suddenly I connected the two things. He lived in Manhattan. It would have been absolutely a no-brainer for me to visit with him. And uh, I was really, really mad. And oh man, I just, I can't bear to think about the idea that had they just got to reunite later in life, both of them having spent a life in magic, that truly would have been a Hollywood ending. But of course, it wasn't to be. I'm going to let Werner Reich basically take the mic and run with it. Uh, when I was liberated on May 5th by American forces, you know, the camp was surrounded with corpses. I was 17 years old and I weighed 64 pounds. And then I went to back to Yugoslavia, which was stupid because there were communists there. Uh, my family wasn't there and nothing was there. My friends weren't there and I got stuck for two years. And then I managed to get to England. And when I was in London, I bought myself, uh, I forgot the name of the place, there's a big magic store, Hamlin's or... Uh, Hamley's, there's a magic yeah, store yeah, yeah. Hamley's or Davenport's uh, And I maybe. bought a couple of things there and I bought my friends to tears with these tricks. And then I came to the States and I discovered Tannen's Jubilee. Uh-huh. And for years I went and these were, this was the golden period of magic. Uh, there were people like Slidini and Gorshman and people like that. And uh, I took some magic lessons and I got involved in it and I, I fell deeply in love with magic. Now, if I would have seen 50 other tricks, they may not have impressed me as much. And uh, I thought I had something unique that other people didn't have. And when I showed it in England to my friends, they were uh, amazed by what I could do. 
and that encouraged me. So I bought tricks and I performed for them, probably in the most, most horrible, terrible fashion because I had no teacher. I had absolutely no magic teacher and I didn't know really how magic should be performed. To me, it was just a matter of partly showing off and partly playing theater. And when I came to the States and I saw, you know, professional magicians, some of them just finger-flinging, being crazy with moves, and others just being artists, I suddenly realized the artistic beauty of magic. And that's what I appreciate, uh, the storytelling with demonstration, creating a piece of art. The technique, whether it's simple or complicated, is unimportant, but the flow of ideas, of uh, the beauty of it, the taking you into a fantasy world, and performing that fantasy world. It's like telling children fairy tales. I was born in uh, Germany, in Berlin, and uh, my father was a mechanical and an electrical engineer. He worked for Siemens. We had a typical Jewish middle-class life, and my sister, who was four years older, went to school and everything was hunky-dory, everything was nice. And my mother uh, was, had been a good German during World War I, uh, just like uh, most other German Jews. And she had been a nurse in the German military. And uh, she saved the lives of a whole bunch of German soldiers. And for that, she was awarded the Iron Cross. And with it, a citation which said that the gratitude of the fatherland will be with you forever. And she believed it. Warner came from a family that was very German before they identified as Jewish. And that's what made this so hard for Warner and families like Warner. And then in 1933, Hitler came to power he immediately instituted several laws and rules. Number one, Jews could not work for non-Jewish companies. Jews could not work for universities. Jews could not be teachers. Then there was a law of overcrowding of schools. In other words, uh, if there were too many students, the schools could reject the students. And obviously it was strictly geared against Jews and maybe gypsies or some Jehovah's Witnesses. So schools became free of Jews and other minorities. So my father lost his job because he worked for a non-Jewish company. So we left Germany with extremely little money uh, and we ended up in Yugoslavia. 
My father died in 1940. A few months later, 1941, Germany invaded Yugoslavia. To be honest, I didn't know any of this stuff was happening. When I was a child, uh, children were sent out of the room if any serious conversation would occur. And that applied to anything. For instance, I didn't know my father was deadly sick afterwards. I didn't know any of the what was happening in Germany or why we left Germany or any of that stuff. And it made me completely unprepared years later when I ended up in the camps. I didn't know what a concentration camp was until I was in one. And when his father died tragically of a health issue, it was just him and his sibling and his mother. And they moved around a fair amount and she made what she thought was the best decision for her two children, but ended up being truly the worst decision, which was to hide her kids with members of the resistance. These were people who were making secret newspapers against the Nazi regime. But of course, this made the very place where the kids were being hidden a target. And of course, the Nazis found this secret partisan camp, this secret partisan newspaper and arrested Warner and his sibling and immediately put them into the camp system. It was one morning, there was a knock at the door and uh, I think something like half a dozen Gestapo agents, these were the German agents, they came in and everything that they found in the cabinets they threw on the floor. I was lying in bed and there was a guy with a big Luger gun sitting over me and uh, then I wanted to go to the bathroom and uh, I had to keep the door open and he pointed the gun at me and let me tell you one thing uh, if somebody points a gun at you while you're sitting on a toilet you don't need a laxative it works very well perhaps the most remarkable thing about the many remarkable things about Warner Reich is his basically total absence of anger. He doesn't hold against his captors and the regime and his bad fortune in his early life. He doesn't take it personally. He doesn't hold it in a place that that makes him angry every day. In fact, he uses humor, I can tell, to diffuse situations. Whenever things get a little too serious when I'm interviewing him on stage or I see somebody ask a question that it's really just so painful to even ask, he blows it off with a joke. He'll say, well, you know, we always said be happy at Auschwitz. What do you mean be happy at Auschwitz, Warner? Well, we always used to say. You know, I'm happy that I'm in Auschwitz. If I wouldn't be happy, I'd still be in Auschwitz. So might as well be happy. I remember this and I'm still using it indirectly in my life. I'm accepting uh, the a situation the way it is. You know, there's no, if things go bad, I don't throw myself on the floor and uh, cry, oh, woe is me or stuff like that, or why me? Uh, but uh, that's it, finished accept it and go from there on. Any time you spend on the problem is a waste of time. 
jokes were very, very, very important because they took you to a different life, to a different perspective of things. You can visualize, we were telling jokes in Mauthausen, lying amongst corpses, actual piles and piles of corpses in Mauthausen. And we were telling these jokes and, uh, you know, they, they brought us a different atmosphere. And that's both profound and, of course, an oversimplification, a coping mechanism to, to help us deal with the fact that he went through all these things. Just boggles my mind. Well, after I was arrested, I was beaten up by the Gestapo uh, in uh, Yugoslavia. And I was lucky that I was arrested by the Gestapo because the Croats, the Ustasche, would have cut my throat. That was their standard punishing method. And from there I was, for some obscure reason, sent by the Germans to Slovenia. And I was there in a jail for three days with millions of fleas. And then I was sent to Graz, Austria. And from there I was shipped to Vienna. And in Vienna I was kept in an old synagogue that had been destroyed during the night of the broken glass. And from there I was sent to Terezin. And I was in Terezin, Czechoslovakia, which was an old fortress for 10 months. I was exterminating vermin, I was making baskets, I was doing all different types of work. 15 years old. I mean, this is a lot for a young kid to go through. What what got you through it? What, what were you saying to yourself? I didn't have the time to contemplate and, and walk around and say, woe is me, or stuff like that. I knew that, uh, you know, tomorrow this thing is going to be over and uh, things will be uh, back to normal. It's sort of a switch to strictly survival. The idea of that there's injustice in this world and things are not fair or stuff like that never even occurred to me. You, you learned how to survive under adverse conditions. You know, if you didn't, you saw the consequences. This was particularly true in Auschwitz. If you open your mouth or if you didn't behave exactly, you got killed. I was uh, in Terezin for 10 months. And then, just as a quick aside, Terezin was a demonstration camp demonstrating to the Swiss and uh, also Red Cross that the Germans are not mistreating the Jews. So they had inspections a couple of times a year. They had a problem because there, were, there was bad food in Terezin and it was overcrowded. So the bad food they solved by carrying in good food for a couple of days. But the overcrowding they solved by sending transports to Auschwitz 
and then sending him to the gas chamber. So altogether, uh, 141,000 people had been sent to Terezin and 17,000 uh, survived. You know, just to give you an idea. Uh, but anyway, I was in Terezin for 10 months and then I got to Auschwitz and I met uh, Levine, Herbert Levine. And then a couple of months later, July 6th, there were three selections in one day conducted by Dr. Mengele. And he chose out of uh, thousands uh, of young people, men uh, like me, uh, he chose 89 of us. And all the rest of the people were sent to the gas chambers, the remaining 6,000 out of the camp. Uh, we were running for our lives, you know. Uh, I've had a couple of selections before that, you know, we were trying to look taller and stronger and healthier. And, uh, you know, we were all sk skeletons, so to speak. When the war was over 10 months later or so, there were only 47 still alive out of the 89. So 47 out of roughly uh, 6,000 people. That's all that survived. In Auschwitz, you're in your barracks and you discover a rather odd person next to you. Can you tell us about how you discovered this person and their strange talent? When I came to Auschwitz, he came on the same transport from Terezin in Czechoslovakia with me to Auschwitz. And we were assigned to a barrack and uh, everybody could find any place they wanted to, any of the bunk beds. And uh, those of us who were stronger tried to climb up to the top of the bunk beds because the weaker ones or the extremely strong ones took the lower bunks. So I was up on the top bunk, second from the edge of the bed. There were six of us on each level in the bunk. So there were three of us sleeping in one direction and the other three in the other direction. And we always had a pair of feet in our faces. And next to me, there was a gentleman uh, who must have been about uh, 37 or 38 years old. I was at that time uh, 16. And uh, I was uh, very deferent to him because uh, I was taught as a child to honor the elders and to be polite and so on. And that's what I was. And this man turned to me probably the first person since I've been in the camp. And he was very, very polite and very nice to me. And uh, he introduced himself as Mr. Herbert Levine. Novelli was born Herbert Levin in Berlin in 1906. And he reversed the spelling of his name, Herbert Levin, backwards with some illies and changes to make the word Novelli. After the war, he came to the United States and he opened up a total of seven magic shops throughout his life. At the end of his life, Novelli performed on cruise ships. 
He died in 1977. So we became casually friends. Uh, one day, I returned back to the barrack, and, and there was Mr. Levine shuffling a deck of cards. Well, shuffling a deck of cards in Auschwitz was unknown because we had absolutely no private property whatsoever. We had no combs, we had no pencils, paper or anything. Everything was taken away from us. And there he was shuffling a deck of cards. It was just to totally astounding to me. And then he showed me a card trick and uh, I had never, ever seen a card trick before in around about 1940, 1939, and the card tricks were unknown in Europe. And he showed me that trick and he explained it to me. I want to take a pause for a moment and explain to you why this moment is such a big deal. Here's Novelli, a professional magician, and here's Werner Reich, a teenager, not a magician. And the professional is telling this amateur, this layperson, how he did the trick. This is, in a sense, unprecedented. But of course, these are unprecedented times. I can't say for certain, because of course I wasn't there, but I think that a moment of humanity stepped in and Novelli recognized that this was somebody who wouldn't perceive this as an exposure, that he wouldn't be spoiling this for this person that this would pass the time, that this might provide that spark, that little spark that gives Werner just another reason to stay alive. And as it happens, it worked. January 19th or so, the Russians were advancing and we were hoping of being liberated by Russian forces. We heard cannon fire and so on. And then 60,000 of us were given a slice of bread and we started on a death march. And we went in sub-freezing temperatures for three days and people were just dying. By the time we stopped after three days, uh, there were 15,000 dead already. And then we were loaded into open railroad cars, open railroad cars in the winter. And we traveled for four days from Poland down to Austria, to Mauthausen. Uh, I can't recall what happened after the first day and a half. I just passed out. When we arrived in Mauthausen, Half the people were dead in the train, and uh, we tried to walk into the camp at great difficulties because all of us were frostbitten. And then they showered us, and we just collapsed, screaming with pain because uh, all of our feet were uh, frozen, and then my feet started to rot. And uh, after three days, uh, the, there was a Serbian doctor, he cut off my toes on one foot and part on the other foot. And that's how he saved my life. But then the SS all disappeared. They were either escaping or they were 
put into the German military, you know, to fight, which was a huge disaster because we had no food. We ended up getting a tablespoon of moldy bread a day. And I carried that trick in my head for the next few years because I had no access to cards. He would have showed me five tricks, probably uh, would have created utter confusion. But he carved this trick into my brain, which was empty of all other tricks. And so it was a unique one-time experience. And uh, it's called a glide. And it's a standard move. Uh, it's not enough to make a trick out of it. But it didn't make any difference. For me, it was an introduction to magic and uh, introduced me to the possibilities. And it was a very, very simple move. It was consisted of two parts. Number one, forcing a card, which he didn't explain to me, which I learned years later. And the second one, taking the second card from the bottom and uh, uh, pretending to put the bottom card out, but actually pulling the second card out. It was total uh, revelation. I was liberated on May 5th by American forces. All in all, I cannot complain. No, no, seriously, life has been good to me. When I compare myself to all the people who died, when I compare myself to all my friends who died, uh, my mother who died, you know, who, who, you know, I had a lousy bunch of years, but at least I'm still alive. What makes this story so remarkable is that it once again frames magic in a larger context. We've been conditioned to think about magic as just tricks, tricks that amuse us, tricks that amaze us. But magic has a transformative power, the power to keep somebody alive, the power to keep a thought in a head until a year later when you can buy a deck of cards in London and try that trick out. It leads to a lifelong passion and brings purpose to someone's life. The biggest thing that I like here is the feeling of brotherhood amongst people. They're willing to share. There's a certain love amongst magicians which uh, Nivelli showed me. Magic can't be contained. It can't be stopped. Not on a stage, not in a concentration camp, not anywhere. That's it for this episode of How Magicians Think. In the next episode, what do you believe? This is an episode that does a deep dive on the strange relationship between magic and pseudoscience, the role magicians have played in debunking all the quack science in the world. And let me tell you something. In these current times we're living in, we need this episode more than ever. I speak with experts. I recount strange parts of quack science and magic history. It's going to be a blast. I'll see you there. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think.
How Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc. Executive produced by Joshua J., Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J., Audio Up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from Audio Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.